Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 467, recorded on Sunday, April 23rd, 2023. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. All right. Can you get us started on this week's topic? Yes. This week, we're talking about the Council on Books in Wartime. Um, So the Council on Books in Wartime was a major nonprofit private sector defense expenditure during World War II that single-handedly made a bunch of books like The Great Gatsby, into major American texts. They did not receive U.S. government funds, but they were government-approved. Primarily, book publisher companies were involved in the project. And later, as the war wrapped up, they pivoted the project to American soft power projection by targeting the books to liberated or occupied civilian populations abroad. This strategy of influencing thinking at home and abroad is reflected in their motto, Books are weapons in the war of ideas. Yeah, they really liked themselves. They thought they were doing some really amazing work here for civilization. Yeah, if you look at any of the iconography, um, which will be included in our links to sources um, used in this show, you'll see a lot of like very, um, very patriotic, very uh, big and expansive uh, iconography used during this time by the council. So according to Andrew Brozina's 2012 to 2015 blog, Books for Victory, dedicated to the history of the program, quote, the aim of the CBW was to promote the reading of books as a way to increase morale, share information, and encourage critical thinking among Americans. The happy side benefit to the publishing industry was more book sales. Early in the war, the CBW held public lectures and hosted radio dramatizations of books, but its most influential programs were the nonprofit publication of millions of paperbacks. First published in 1943, the Armed Services Editions were miniature format paperbacks of bestsellers, which were freely distributed to American troops. These boosted the morale of homesick soldiers and fostered their post-war habit of book reading. First published in 1944, the Overseas Editions were translations of American authors, which were given to the newly liberated people in Europe and Asia. The directors of the CBW included some of the most important American publishers of the decade. The men most recognizable today would be John Farrar, co-founder of Farrar and Reinhardt, and after World War II, he founded Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, Uh, Donald S. Klopfer, co-founder of Random House, Alfred A. Knopf, founder of Alfred A. Knopf, Inc., Frederick G. Melcher, editor of Publishers Weekly, and he helped found the Children's Book Awards, uh, the Newbery Medal and Caldecott Medal. Uh, William Warder Norton, founder of W.W. Norton and Company, and Richard L. Simon, co-founder of Simon & Schuster. So some of the biggest names in publishing then and into today. 
So the one of the leading authorities uh, on this topic of the Council on Books in Wartime uh, was the author Molly Guptil Manning, who published a book in December 2014, uh, When Books Went to War. This is a history of the program. Uh, and there was a lengthy uh, Smithsonian interview with her uh, published at the same time that the book came out. Uh, and it's pretty good stuff. So we're just going to quote from her uh, answers to the interview. So they asked about the origins of the Victory Book campaign. Uh, and this kind of gets into especially the very self-righteous attitude that these publishers had in uh, the uh, self and self-regard about the importance of their uh, project. So, quote, the book burnings in Germany in the 1930s sparked discussion in America and around the world about why books were under attack and how Americans could counteract this purging of ideas. In every country Germany invaded, books containing viewpoints antagonistic to the Nazi platform were destroyed. American librarians decided that the best way to fight back was to encourage Americans to read more making books weapons in the war of ideas. So they began collecting books to distribute to service members, which would provide much-needed entertainment and morale boosting in the bare-bones training camps. What came to be known as the Victory Book Campaign, this preceded the uh, Council on Books in Wartime, mobilized American civilians to donate 18 million books between 1942 and 1943. The librarians waged publicity campaigns, hosted collection contests, worked with organizations like the Boy and Girl Scouts for door-to-door -door collections, pitched stories to newspapers, and scattered book donation receptacles across their towns and cities. Uh, and then the question was, why did the donation campaign, run by the libraries, come to an end to be replaced by the Armed Services Editions from the Council on Books in Wartime and the publishing companies? Uh, she says, first, many of the donated books did not suit the reading tastes of young men. Thousands of children's books were donated, for instance. Librarians had to painstakingly sort the books they collected in order to send only the best. And the donated books were primarily hardcovers, so as servicemen shipped out overseas, they proved too heavy and unwieldy to carry. These problems exposed the need for paperback editions of books that young men would especially enjoy. American publishers banded together to form a group called the Council on Books in Wartime, and ultimately developed troop-friendly paperbacks called Armed Services Editions, ASEs, which were designed to fit in the hip or breast pocket of a military uniform and were printed in titles that soldiers eagerly snatched up. So how were the ASE books chosen? Were there any that struck you as especially surprising? And she says, Great care went into choosing the ASE titles. Publishers first put together lists of bestsellers and other appealing titles. Then a group of hired readers went through each book and highlighted any passages that were offensive, discriminatory, or might give comfort to the enemy. These were reviewed more closely, and the Army and Navy had the final say. But the publishers were surprisingly liberal-minded when it came to the titles they printed. Rather than avoid books about Hitler or Nazi Germany, the Council published Der Führer, Hitler's Rise to Power, a biography of the Nazi leader by German-Jewish journalist Konrad Haydn. They also printed books considered indecent in the United States. Titles such as Strange Fruit and Forever Amber were both banned in some states and cities because they contained sex scenes. Uh, and there's an editorial note that's... Uh, for those who don't know, Strange Fruit, the story of an interracial romance, was also briefly banned from being distributed to the U.S. Postal Service until Eleanor Roosevelt urged her husband to intervene. Uh, so she continues, The council's hired readers urged against printing trashy books, uh, and the argument grew so heated that it was presented to the council's executive board, which ruled in favor of publishing them. What was the lasting impact of the campaign? And she says, the average World War II conscript had an 11th grade education and did not read books. 
during the war, sometimes out of sheer desperation for something to do, the men would pick up books because they were the only entertainment around. Many service members came home with a love of books. Thanks to the popularity of the ASCs, publishers started to release cheap paperback editions for civilians, so veterans returned to a flourishing paperback trade. The ASCs also motivated many GIs to go to college, having proven that they could enjoy reading and studying. Some two million veterans who might never have enrolled in a university before the war found themselves signing up for a free college education. Uh, and now the Smithsonian piece also notes from her book that the Council on Books in Wartime proved to be a powerful force for liberalism in 1944 when right-wing Senator Robert A. Taft tried to ban the distribution to service members of any written material that could be considered, quote, propaganda. Uh, and he wanted to attach this as an amendment to legislation to facilitate overseas voting in the 1944 presidential elections. Uh, the publishers, through the Council on Books in Wartime, waged a successful media campaign against his effort and any similar non-security-related censorship. Journalists were keeping a close eye on Taft as the story grew, and eventually they caught him admitting out loud that his motivation was to stop a wave of troops in the field voting to re-elect FDR to a fourth term, which killed his amendment. So continuing on that theme of educating both the public and the soldiers, uh, the Council on Books in Wartime created a war book panel specifically to choose books to recommend to the public that would aid in the goals of the war effort. These books would clarify why the U.S. was at war, what values were at stake, and how the peace effort after the war might take shape. The panel periodically met to review and vote on titles, and these titles would be republished and marked as imperative war book panel selections on the front cover with a large I and kind of a badge on the front cover. Um, and council members were obligated to advertise these titles. Um, as we mentioned before, a lot of these members were publishers, and so they were obligated to advertise these imperative titles, even if they were published by a competing publishing house. And in the years that the panel was active, from 1942 to 1945, they selected six titles for the imperative designation. Um, and these are W.L. White's They Were Expendable, uh, John Hersey's Into the Valley, 1940 Republican presidential nominee Wendell Wilkie's One World, um, which was notably published in 1943 after the presidential campaign, uh, Walter Lippmann's U.S. Foreign Policy, Shield of the Republic, uh, John Hersey again, A Bell for Adano, and Edgar Snow's uh, People on Our Side. Uh, a seventh book, Ralph Ingersoll's The Battle is the Payoff, was voted on by the panel in the spring of 1945, but it was already selling well without that um, imperative badge, and the end of the war was in sight, so they declined to republish it as an imperative book uh, title. These six books uh, were a mix of fiction and nonfiction, and one thing I really wanted to uh, note was the emphasis on the outcome of the fight for control of China between communists and nationalists. Uh, Wilkie's One World prophesied that whoever came out on top in China would be a force to be reckoned with, and he also stated that it was the duty of the Allies to ensure that the victors would be friendly to Allied interests, but also powerful enough to benefit the Chinese people. Um, Edgar Snow, uh, in his book People on Our Side, took more of a stance, um, and he was behind the communists, and he, in his book he depicted them as important in the fight against fascism. And uh, an interesting side note, uh, Edgar Snow was a contemporary of Agnes Smedley, whom we discussed in January uh, 2022 on episode 409. 
So it's it's interesting that uh, there was always already that look forward to what might uh, the post-war world look like and uh, what countries would uh, have a pretty big say in what that world looked like. So going back to the council as a larger body, the Library of Congress blog wrote about the project in August 2022, and quoting from that, Booksellers, publishers, authors, librarians, and critics formed the Council on Books in Wartime to produce more than 122 million paperbacks for free distribution to U.S. service members from 1943 to 1947. These odd-shaped books were specifically designed to fit the pockets of the uniforms for all branches of service and to be easy to read in difficult conditions. While various attempts had been made previously to distribute books in wartime, and some paperbacks had, had been around prior to the AASEs, this program helped to transform the nature of publishing after the war. A small committee selected the books with recreational reading as the first goal. It was hoped that a mixture of fiction and nonfiction titles would cater to all levels of taste. Contemporary fiction was most popular. Uh, service members could share their enjoyment with families back home who were reading the same books. Popular categories included historical novels, mysteries, books of humor, and westerns, but poetry and classics were included in the mix. In later years, nonfiction books designed to prepare soldiers for careers once they returned home were in demand. Photos show the immensely popular books being read on the front lines, on ships, in POW camps in Germany and Japan, in hospitals, while standing in any sort of line, and in camps and bases. They were reportedly as popular as pinup girl illustrations and were, quote, better than chocolate or cigarettes, end quote, for trading. General Eisenhower requested that a special set be reserved so that each service member was issued a book as they boarded the D-Day landing craft. Sort of grim to think about that, though, considering the casualty rates in those landing crafts. Yes, for sure. So according to a September 2014 article in The Atlantic on the uh, project during the war, by giving away millions of free copies to service members, uh, quote, some of the publishers think that their business is going to be ruined, end quote. Uh, the prominent broadcaster H.V. Kaltenborn told his audience in 1944, quote, but I make this prediction. America's publishers have cooperated in an experiment that will, for the first time, make us a nation of book readers, end quote. So let's talk a little bit more about that, because that is sort of what happened. Now, to some degree, the social transformation of paperbacks was already underway even without the war. In 1939, publishers began releasing serious paperback books for a quarter, and millions of copies were being sold in a rapidly increasing pace each year thereafter. But, clearly, the Council on Books in Wartime took things to a whole new level much faster. Quoting now from The Atlantic, Sales of paperbacks did slump precisely as feared in 1946. Surprisingly, though, it was the lighter fare that failed to sell. More serious works held their ground. Publishers adjusted and redoubled their efforts at marketing. They found thousands of new outlets precisely as Jacobs envisioned. They expanded their selection of titles, offering up literary novels, histories, collections of poetry, and books about science alongside their mysteries and westerns. Sales picked up. By 1950, publishers sold 214 million copies of 642 separate paperback titles, enough for every adult in the country to have bought a couple of books. The Atlantic piece also discusses process and results during the war itself. Quote, the council decided to use magazine presses, printing two copies on each page, and then slicing the book in half perpendicular to the binding. 
The result was a book wider than it was tall, uh, featuring two columns of text for easier reading in low light. The real innovation, though, was less technological than ideological. The publishers proposed to take books available only in hardcover form and produce them in this disposable format. The plan, breathtaking in its ambition, was sure to engender skepticism among publishers asked to donate the rights to some of their most valuable property. So, the chair of the committee, W.W. Norton, took care to appeal not just to the patriotism of his fellow publishers, but also to their pursuit of profits. Quote, the net result to the industry and the future of book reading can only be helpful, he explained. The very fact that millions of men will have the opportunity to learn what a book is and what it can mean is likely now and in post-war years to exert a tremendous influence on the post-war course of the industry, end quote. The Army and Navy endorsed the program and in July of 1943 began shipping the books around the world. The Council aimed to produce one box of books for every 150 soldiers and sailors and also sent boxes to smaller isolated detachments. By the spring of 1945, the program shipped 155,000 crates of these armed services editions each month with 40 new books packed into each box. Wherever they arrived, soldiers tore them open and began to read. Quote, Dog-eared and moldy and limp from the humidity, those books go up the line, wrote a war reporter from the Southwest Pacific. Because they are what they are, because they can be packed in a hip pocket or snuck into a shoulder pack, men are reading where men have never read before, end quote. A lieutenant in the Marshall Islands wrote of seeing men devour books, quote, by a dim flashlight under a shelter half even after the air raid siren has already blown, and they should be in a foxhole, end quote. Another soldier reported that, quote, the books are read until they fall apart, end quote. The box of 30 or 40 books shipped to thousands of units each month might include This is Murder, Mr. Jones, or a Zane Grey Western, but also Carl Sandburg's Poems, or Tristram Shandy, or The Making of Modern Britain. Almost all were available only as expensive hardbacks on the civilian market, and a few were original compilations made exclusively for the program. The goal, as W.W. Norton explained, was to offer, quote, new books of enduring value, end quote, that might keep the soldiers and sailors, quote, in touch with thought and currents of life in their country, end quote. The Council on Books aimed not merely to entertain, but also to educate and inspire. Some of the selections were idiosyncratic. In 1945, the Council picked out an older novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald that had never achieved popular success. It sold just 120 copies the previous year and another 33 in 1945 before going out of print. The 155,000 copies of The Great Gatsby that they shipped out to the troops dwarfed all its previous print runs combined. Buoyed by that exposure, it would go on to become one of the great publishing successes of the 20th century. One GI with an unusual vantage point was Joe Allen, who went from the council directly into the ranks as a private soldier and had a chance to see its impact firsthand. And then he wrote back to the council, Quote, you are instilling in them, whether you are aware of it or not, a taste for good reading that will surely persist come victory. I have seen many a man who never before had the patience or inclination to read a book, pick up one of the councils, and become absorbed and ask for more. Soldiers are acquiring a new habit, that of reading, concurred a lieutenant in the Pacific, writing that it would result in additional book sales in the future, end quote. 
something else I read, but I didn't uh, get a chance to put it in the notes, is that um, people, in addition to passing the books around throughout their uh, battalions and units, would actually rip the books chapter by chapter. And I'm, I'm not sure, I didn't see it mentioned anywhere, whether the publishers took that into any consideration in how they printed the books. So hopefully there weren't just like partial chapters uh, floating around or your chapter would get cut off <laughs> if, if the page belonged to another chapter and got passed around. So maybe some inadvertent cliffhangers uh, were happening. But I found that pretty interesting. Like, and, and that's something that the paperback format is conducive to. You can't rip a hardback uh, book and, and pass it around. So I found that very interesting and in how the format was just uh, so helpful that and previously it was a very unpopular format, kind of a trashy format, and it really got a, a brush up, a glow up because of this council. So the concept of giving books to uh, service members has not really died away completely. Um, in the post 9-11 era of global deployments, uh, reading programs for the US service members regained prominence, but soon the technology was a bit more advanced than the modified paperbacks of the 1940s. In 2014, the Navy released its Navy e-reader device, or NERD. It has features similar to a Kindle, an e-ink display with adjustable fonts and typeface sizes, but it has no internet capabilities, removable storage, or ways to add or remove titles, and this is to comply with security requirements. You don't want um, Navy members on a submarine to um, create a, an exploit, a backdoor exploit with their Kindle. Um, that can be hackable. So these nerds come preloaded with almost 300 books, including the Bible and Quran, as well as popular fiction like Tom Clancy and James Patterson novels, as well as classics and plenty of naval history. And uh, to, in addition to that, today the Department of Defense, Morale, Welfare, and Recreation Library has an overdrive collection, um, an ebook, and other digital uh, resources are available. So there is a way to access these uh, digital books, magazines, movies, um, just not when security is a concern. So I found that pretty interesting. So now we know the history of how The Great Gatsby got rescued from obscurity and propelled to being one of the uh, American literary classics. Whether you like it or not, you probably read it in high school as a result of this program. Uh, Rachel, I didn't really know a whole lot about this uh, program until we were uh, putting this episode together, but it was kind of interesting. And I, I liked the sort of material implications, you know, of, of how they figured out how to design these books and to print them at very, very low cost so that they could circulate these. And then it, you know, of course, ends up making them a lot of money after the war. Yeah. And I, I, I do like the feel of a small portable paperback. So we have the uh, the council to thank for for the availability of those books to this day. So I really appreciate it. I, I like a good paperback as compared to a hardback. So it's interesting. There, It's not just for trashy novels. And I also found it very interesting that it wasn't just the lighter fare that got circulated. Um, there were some pretty heavy hitters included that were also very popular. So I, I thought that was an interesting aspect as well. Yeah, a lot of accounts of these tough soldiers with tears streaming down their faces as they read these uh, sad novels about various things and, you know, get very emotionally invested. I will say also about this that I find very interesting is we love talking on this show about the role 
that defense contracts and wars play in building up particular civilian industries, you know, things like canned food in the Civil War leading to the canned food consumer sector and uh, post-war marketing after the Civil War, things like air conditioning, uh, any number of these things, right? We love talking about that on this show because that's such a common through line. And we obviously talked recently about uh, Gillette razors uh, during World War One and that kind of thing. But this one is interesting because although it did have similar implications for the post-war civilian industry, this was not a defense contract. This was not like a big congressional appropriation because they probably could have done that, right? They probably could have gone to Congress and said, hey, give us a whole bunch of money to reprint these books. Uh, you know, we'll make these nice paperbacks and send them over there. And that is not how it worked. They did get approval from the Army and Navy and so forth, but... This was fundamentally a private nonprofit project, and they picked up the tab for it themselves. They they tried to make the books as cheap as possible to produce, but they did pick up the tab on that. And that does set it apart from a lot of the other ones that we have talked about. Yeah, I, I think a big aspect of it is just how big the drafted army was or the drafted military was. Uh, we were sending a lot of our boys over. So I think that made a big difference. And there was that whole kind of spirit of altruism going on at that time. So I think that that kind of bled into the publishing industry as well, that kind of altruistic, well, albeit it, with an eye for future profits, but I think it that the sheer numbers really tip the balance as compared to like, say the post 9-11 deployment that our military isn't that big people wise numbers wise so it looks different now than it did back then and to your point like as we've obviously quoted extensively here they were clearly aware that there was a potential to make a lot of profit after the war but it was a risky gamble and if nothing else you would classify this as a loss leader essentially mm -hmm. right that they spent a whole bunch of money creating a literal army of paperback readers uh who were going to come back and want to buy and read really serious paperbacks uh, after the war and they were proven correct on this gamble, but they did put up a lot of money up front kind of on spec. And that is interesting, I think. And I think that's why we started by talking about the victory book campaign, which was organized through the libraries across the country, because that, like you said, is a, there's this private donation push there and it becomes clear that there is a different way of doing altruism here that is going to yield better results than actually people making all these donations because you get the economies of scale, the mass mm -hmm. production of it all, all those things that are things that we talk about on the show all the time for other industries. But clearly there was this element of, well, let's, you know, we might get something out of this, but we're not sure, but let's try it and let's do something good for the, for our boys, right? And that's certainly different than, say, getting a contract to supply all the watches or the official razor blade shaving kits for the, you know, every soldier under arms in World War One or World War Two, Right. Like mm -hmm. there, there is a difference here. And uh, you definitely can't, I think, separate it from the ideological component, which was this fixation on the idea that um, books were a uh, bulwark of democracy and that, you know, reading a random uh, literary fiction novel set in some major American city that has nothing to do with the war, but that is a blow against Hitler. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that probably also comes from the fact that the precursor campaign was being organized through libraries. And 
uh, God love all the librarians and libraries uh, uh, in this country, but certainly there is a long tradition of libraries uh, really banging that drum of saying that libraries and their books are the, uh, you know, the absolute cornerstone of American democracy, which is not necessarily wrong, but they sure love telling everyone that. Mm-hmm. Well, in tying into that, just the the subject matter, like books that were controversial, um, like that Strange Fruit book, like it did still get sent over. And I think that's kind of an interesting facet of it or uh, books like Wendell Wilkie's One World or books that are talking about Chinese communists. Like, I think that's very interesting that those books were getting sent over um, and, and getting distributed throughout the military. I found that very interesting. That kind of let's expose the public and the military to these like wide range of ideas and, and get them thinking about these concepts. I I found that very interesting, especially compared to like today's climate or compared to the, the nerd that has Tom Clancy and James Patterson novels. Like, I don't know how many controversial or controversial adjacent books are on those nerds as compared to what was getting distributed back during world war two. And you're right to highlight this, especially the uh, the uh, the works about the Chinese communists and so forth, because I think you have to look at this through the lens of being an ideological project coming and going, right? So it's ideologically motivated, as we talked about on the side of the publishers, but it's also there's an ideological component from the uh, Roosevelt administration and the Navy Department and the Army and all of those things, right? Because they're understanding this as being, I mean, they maybe didn't have the terminology that we now have about like American soft power and things like that, but they're understanding the extent to which this stuff was. I mean, you know, Robert Taft, obviously a bad guy uh, with reactionary opinions, but you can see why he was getting worked up about the idea that some of this stuff was propaganda, even when it wasn't explicitly ideological propaganda, because there's something implicitly woven through this that has a a uh in the most positive way you could spin it propagandizing element right not necessarily for leftism but certainly for a more open internationalist liberalism which obviously people like taft had a problem with and it reminds me uh you know if they're sending out books or encouraging americans back home to read books on the Chinese communist struggle and how the, you know, there potentially are allies in that part of the world, not only now, but maybe in the future as well. That's sort of the book equivalent of those posters that you sometimes see from World War II that say, this man is your friend, and then have a picture of like a Soviet soldier or uh, a Yugoslav partisan or whatever it may be, right? They, They show you like, okay, this guy, this is what his uniform looks like, and he's fighting on the same side with you in the Allies. And there is that element, and I think like you can even expand that from the explicitly political content, like the Edgar Snow book uh, about the Chinese communists, and you can also look at things like Strange Fruit, right? It's depicting an interracial relationship, and you might say, wow, that's really surprising that that got through the approval process, not only of the publishers for inclusion in this program, but also through the official approvals process within the Army and Navy in a time when the U.S. military was segregated, but there were definitely ongoing discussions at high levels about, you know, what the future was going to be, and eventually desegregation does happen under uh, President Truman not long uh, after World War II. But this was, 
you know, a, an ongoing hot topic, this this question of racial mixing and whether or not there was going to be a uh, plural future uh, on this subject in the United States as a matter of policy and law, because it was obviously embarrassing in a very stark way to have this as a part of U.S. policy, not only at the state level, but in these federal departments at the Pentagon when that opened uh, and in the uh, ranks of these regiments themselves, all this pervasive segregation. Meanwhile, you're handing out books about the evils of Hitler and Hitlerism and Nazism and fascism and, you know, their racial exterminationist campaigns and how this was bad. And I think, you you know, by including those types of books, part of this is uh, in a in a subtle way to get the conversation going on some of those topics, right? I'm not, you know, let's be careful and not give them too much credit here. But I think that's part of the impetus for that is is this broader sort of liberal soft power project both within the United States to promote liberal values uh, in a country that had pretty significant uh, I think pockets is too generous a word uh, swaths we'll say of the country that were absolutely deeply committed as a matter of law as well as culture to very liberal reactionary uh, standards and and tendencies and say, Let's project that within our armed forces. Let's project that within our society, these values. Let's propagandize for this new future that we could potentially have. And then also you extend that as the war is winding down uh, and the occupations are starting into these uh, overseas additions to be distributed out to these populations of these occupied countries so that they can kind of get to learn more about American culture and life uh, in this pre-television era. There's, of course, television we know subsequently supplants the uh, role of, of projecting American soft power much more than books had. Um, but anyway, that that's what I see as kind of the bigger picture of where this fits in as an ideological project. And like you said, that's a totally different thing than handing someone a secure e-reader that's got the hunt for Red October on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, I, I would be curious to see what uh, kind of that liberalization project would look like in the modern day like yeah what books would would you pass out or translate to to pass out to like foreign um foreign people um to to kind of win them over win over the hearts and minds and equally yeah. uh what type of uh you know biden propaganda re-election propaganda would a republican senator try to block from being included <laughs> in such a program yeah. Uh, um, we all know Biden's going to, you know, get his fourth term as well. So <laughs> hang in there. Uh, anyway, Rachel, thanks so much for coming on this week to talk about the Council on Books and Wartime. Yeah, it was a real pleasure.